0: Welcome to the Hand Tools and Techniques Woodworking Podcast. I'm your host, Bob Rozieski, answering your questions and bringing you tips and tricks to help you get the most out of your time in the shop. Do you have a preferred dovetail pin to tail ratio? Are you unsure about spacing for solid wood case backboards? Do you need a primer on shellac? I'll discuss these topics and more today on Hand Tools and Techniques. Hey everyone, welcome back to Hand Tools and Techniques. Thanks for joining me for episode 49 of the show for May 15th, 2019. Before I start today's show, I want to take a minute to thank all of our patrons for your continued support of the show. And thanks to a new patron this week, Greg Knuckles, for signing up to support the show. Listener support helps to keep the show going, so if you'd like to support the show yourself, just head on over to patreon.com brfinewoodworking If you're already a patron, again, I thank you, and be sure to head on over to Patreon posts page to submit your questions and requests for this month's patron Q&A video that'll be coming out at the end of the month. Uh, And if you're wondering where the April patron Q&A video went, uh, I I am working on that. I apologize. I'm a bit late on that, Um, but I'll I'll explain why in a second. But note that it is coming and it should be out sometime this weekend, I hope. So updates for me over the past couple of weeks. Uh, I have done nothing but install hardwood floors in our new cabin. Uh, And that's why the uh, the patron Q and A video for April is late. So the last uh, two weeks ago, I I took the week off to work on the floors to start on the floors, Uh, and it took probably about twelve full day, twelve days uh, of working on uh, that cabin to get those floors in, and I really needed to to push to get that done as quickly as possible um and this week i've got a crew here sanding the floors so uh, i can get back to uh, to doing what i need to do once they're done sanding but um so that's why uh why the uh, patron q a video for april was late because i was spending every uh, spare ounce of time that i had up at the cabin trying to get the uh, hardwood floors installed and uh you can you can see a quick little thirty second video of those if you're interested over on my uh, my Instagram account. So if you if you just go over to Instagram, look for my account. It's br fine woodworking, uh, and you'll see one of my uh, my most recent posts should be uh, the hardwood floors. If you're interested in taking a look at that, so I got some feedback after the last show. Darren had some feedback on an inexpensive solution for a hot hide glue pot. Uh, He says, here's an option for a double boiler for hot glue that is inexpensive and handy. Look for a hot wax warmer to keep your uh, jelly jar of glue warm. They can be found for around $25 to $30, so they're a, a minimal investment. I use a food thermometer to find out what setting is 130 degrees and make a mark on the dial with a Sharpie marker to be able to get back to the right setting every time so thanks for that Darren that is a a great suggestion for an inexpensive uh, warmer for your hot hide glue so let's get into our questions for this week Uh, so Darren also had a a question in addition to his feedback on the glue pot, Uh, and his question is what is your preference for dovetail tail to pin ratio I know it's a question that where the answer is it depends but do you have any rules of thumb or preferences that you use? Um, I I don't really. So I I guess the only rule of thumb I would say that I have in terms of pin to tail ratio has to do with the size of the piece that I'm making. Um, I don't really have a a ratio per se. Um, I would say if I looked at most of the pieces that I've made Maybe my tails are, you know, two to three times bigger or wider than my pins are. Um, I guess my, my main rule of thumb would be my tails are always bigger than my pins. Because it looks kind of weird if you do it the other way around. Um, so when I do dovetails, my tails are always going to be um, bigger than my pins. Usually two to three times wider, I would say. But that's a real rough guesstimate um, because I've never really measured or cared too much about that actual ratio it really comes down to the visual look of the piece Um, you know a lot of times I don't even use dividers to um, to space out my dovetails if I'm just doing some quick utility dovetails you know on a drawer or on a case um, where the side where the the dovetails are going to be covered up with um with molding and you're not even going to see them Um, i'll a lot of times just use the frank klaus method of um you know just kind of spacing them out by eye and and uh my tails usually aren't even um the same size you know the the tails in the single side might all be different sizes because i'm i'm not really measuring i'm not really stepping them out um, I'm just kind of laying everything out by eye. The one thing that I do different from Frank um, is that I do lay them out with a pencil. Um, when I when I cut my pins, I do typically cut my pins first, and, um, and I do lay them out with a pencil. Um, Frank usually just cuts them by eye and, and doesn't even bother. He doesn't pick up the pencil till he transfers the pins to the tails. Um, but I do lay my pin board out with a pencil just because I like to see it before uh, I start to cut because I don't have the tens and thousands of dovetails under my belt like Frank has. Um, so I usually do lay them out with a pencil just to give myself some lines to cut to. But I don't necessarily always step them out with dividers or measure them or anything like that. Uh, it just kind of, I just kind of, you know, grab my, uh, my bevel square, set it to a one in five uh, angle. Uh, grab my my small combination square to to make the marks straight straight up and down with the end grain and uh, I just lay it out by eye and then start sawing so um, you know if I'm doing something where I really want dead-on symmetry which is pretty rare because usually my dovetails are hidden Uh, I don't like to see them Uh, I'm not in the the modern day camp you know that um, dovetails are real pretty and they, you know you want to see them all the time uh, most of the time my dovetails are hidden you know if I'm building a case piece they're usually covered by molding um, or hidden on the bottom of the case you know I, I'll arrange them so that they're not visible um, and then in drawers you know they're only visible when you pull the drawer out so the majority of the time they're not visible if I'm doing something like um, let's say a six board chest or something like that where the dovetails are going to be visible in cases like that, I will usually step them off with dividers, even if I'm going to paint the chest, because you can still kind of see the dovetails all the time, even with the, when the chest is painted. So in those cases, I'll usually step them out. But like I said, it's still usually something that's done by eye. I'll just I step them out with dividers, just so that the sizes of the pins and tails are consistent. Um, but I don't, uh, I don't consciously, you know, make the tails a certain ratio larger than the pins. It's just the tails are going to be larger than the pins, and that's about it. That's all I worry about. Uh, I don't worry about an actual ratio. If it looks good to my eye, uh, that's that's pretty much all I care about. So, um, so I don't think you have to be that that precise. Um, you certainly can if you want to, and, and come up with a ratio of pins to tails. Um, but i think as long as your tails are a little bit bigger than your pins uh, i think in most cases you're going to be fine whether you step them out with dividers and make your tails all the same size or whether you lay it out by eye um, and don't care so much about the actual size of the tails Uh, as long as your tails are bigger than your pins i think you'll be okay i think it looks kind of funny if the tails are smaller than the pins and when the tails are the same size as the pins, it looks too, um, it looks too mechanical and and what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know. It, it just looks it just looks too industrial. Like it's it doesn't look like a handmade piece um, when you when your pins are that big. So I will typically go with fairly small pins and tails that are probably I would say two to three to four times the size the width of the pins and that usually works for me visually so our next question comes from brian he says i have a quick question about a pine bookcase i'm currently finishing up how much space should i leave between the solid wood backboards at this time of year right now i have them about a penny thickness apart so brian um I think what you've got there is fine. What I typically try to do um, when I put backboards on it, if it's the dead of summer, the most humid time of the year, um, I will usually make them tight and not leave any space between them at all. Um, especially if you've had some, some of those thunder uh, summer thunderstorms where you know it's been humid for a few days, um, you can usually make those backboards nice and tight Um, and not have to worry about it at all. When we get to the driest part of winter, that's when I usually start to worry a little bit about the spacing, because I know those boards are going to expand a bit as the seasons change. Um, I usually, in the the driest part of winter, I'll usually aim for somewhere between a sixteenth and an eighth of an inch um, you know maybe 330 seconds maybe a 16th an eighth of an inch is usually a bit too big um, and, and it makes it look gappy um, and each of those individual boards isn't really going to move all that much so i would say somewhere between a 16th and 330 seconds of an inch in the driest part of the winter so I, I mean i haven't put a caliper on a penny i don't know exactly how thick a penny is but I think at this time of the year, we're looking at you know fairly mild temperatures. You know, you may have some spring rains, so there may be some humid days. Um, over the last week or so, it has been uh, fairly wet in our area, and, and I know where Brian's from, and he's he's not too too far from from where I am. So, uh, I do think you're probably fine with that penny because I think those boards are. Based on the last few, last week, week and a half that we've had, you know, some fairly wet weather around here, um, I think you'll be fine. I would probably expect those boards to shrink just a little bit. Um, They will expand as we get into the the hottest part of the summer, but uh, I think that penny thickness will probably be enough uh, that you don't have to worry about it too much. Um, The other thing is you're using white pine. And white pine is is really really stable. Um, it it gets a bad rap, you know, because of construction lumber. And and in all honesty, white pine most of the time is not used in construction lumber. The stuff that's used in construction lumber is usually um, dug fir or or what they call hem fir, which could be hemlock, spruce fir. It could be a lot of different different things. Um. And and those woods you know when they make construction lumber is they're sopping wet when they mill up construction lumber it's it's even when it says kiln dried it's not kiln dried to the same extent as what we're typically using in furniture making so um once white pine is dry enough for furniture making um, it's really not going to move all that much it's a really really stable wood Uh, and that's one of the reasons that i like it so much so um so i think you'll be fine you know using pine penny thickness um you know like i said it's been kind of humid or you know over the last week week and a half so uh, i think you'll probably be just fine with the thickness that you've got in those boards um with the the spacing that you've got in those boards so that's going to do it for our questions for today uh not too many questions over the over the past couple weeks so if you've got questions please uh you know, send them in email, record a, a voicemail on your phone. Um, you know, if you've got feedback, questions, topic suggestions, that's, that's the way to do it. Record a, a vo- quick voicemail on your phone. It's especially useful if, you know, you're in the car or you, you can't type out an email. Just record that voicemail. Hit that record button on your uh, on your phone and record a voice memo. Uh, and then you can email it later to bob at Brfindwoodworking.com. Uh, if you want, you can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123, though uh, not too many people seem to use the voicemail uh, function, so I don't know how much longer I'm going to keep that. Um, I may just you know, have you just do the voice memo and email it just because it's easier and it's better quality anyway. But for now, uh, if you want to use the voicemail line, you can do that. Again, that number is 276-601-3123. And you can record a voicemail Uh, or you can go to brfinewoodworking.com contact and fill out the contact form and i'll read your question for you but uh you know if you're if you've got a question and you're you know and at a point where you you can't type it out uh just record that that voice memo on your phone uh, and you can always email it later so let's get into the main topic for today a few episodes ago i think it was 47 i talked about varnish today what i want to do is a short primer on shellac uh, what it is how to mix it and how to use it Uh, it's going to be you know some real basics super simple um kind of short you know it's not going to be a real in-depth look at shellac because i'm far from an expert um and and so you know what i really want to talk about are are some of the basics so that you can successfully use the finish on your your projects Um, if you are looking for more in-depth studies into shellac uh, you can check out my late friend Stephen shepherd's book uh, shellac linseed oil and paint traditional 19th century woodwork finishes Um, and you can also look up don williams website uh, which is Don's Barn uh, and he has a page on his website that he calls the uh, the Shellac Archives. Um, Don is a a um, was a professional finisher, restorer, refinisher. Uh, worked for the Smith the Smithsonian for uh, a a long number of years and retired from there, uh, and now has his own website and blog. and uh, He was integral in writing the, uh, in, in getting the two new reprints of the Rubo books, uh, as well as, uh, the Studley book that came out recently, uh, Virtuoso, I think it's called on the Studley tool chest. Um, and he's actually working on a new book on historical finishes as well. So keep an eye out for that, but yeah, definitely check out Don's work on shellac because, um, he is an absolute shellac freak and he knows, more than any the than the rest of us will forget in our lives about shellac so or so the other way around right he's forgotten more about shellac than most of us will uh, will ever know so uh, th- he's just a wealth of knowledge on it so check out donsbarn.com look for the shellac archives and keep an eye out for his new book on historical finishes where i'm sure he will go into uh, enormous detail on finishing with shellac but today we're just going to talk a little bit about the basics of shellac so let's start by talking about what shellac actually is um it's an old finish because it's a a natural finish so it's been around for millennia i mean it's it's the product of a bug right so uh, as long as this insect has been on the earth uh the, the resin that's used to make shellac has been around uh, in terms of its use in furniture and woodwork uh, it's been used for hundreds if not thousands of years you know there's documented evidence going back to the 1500s that talk about and, and mention shellac or lac, um as well as you know it may have been used as far back as the Egyptians we just we don't have we don't know exactly when the first use of shellac was, but um, it's been used for hundreds, if not thousands, of years. Um, it's a natural material, as I said. It's it is an excretion of the lac bug. Uh, it's similar. It's basically a type of beetle uh, that lives in in Asia, uh, primarily India, I believe. Uh, and what essentially happens is the um the female ex, uh, excretes this lac resin. It's essentially bug poop, I guess, but uh, I'm not sure that it, that that's entirely true, but it is an excretion from this lac beetle. And they deposit this excretion on twigs and sticks of fig trees or uh, acacia trees and, and different trees in the these Asian regions. And that that excretion sticks to the twigs and branches of the tree. And when there's enough of it, the people will collect those sticks and branches and they will uh, scrape away the, all that bug residue. And, uh, of course, because it's a natural material and because it's stuck to these branches and, and sticks and twigs... Um, what you get when they start scraping off all of the residue is, you know, mostly the the lac resin, the shellac resin. Um, but also you're gonna get some dirt, you're gonna get some some tree bark and twig parts and um and bug parts and things like that. So um, you know, the what you get in that most crude form is is referred to as stick lac. Um, And it's essentially, you know, the resin on the stick and and the pieces that are scraped off. Um, When it's scraped off the sticks into essentially a powder, uh, it's referred to as seedlack. So you don't get, you know, a full stick, but then you might, you're still going to have like some bug parts in there. Um, You know, maybe some bark and, and woody material from the, from scraping off that twig, but you don't have any whole sticks left in, in there. So that would be referred to as C lac. So stick lac is when it's on the stick. C lac is once it's scraped off. And those are the really the two most unrefined forms of shellac. From there, the process starts where they begin to refine the resin, refine the shellac to get it into a form that we can use for wood finishing so one of the first things they will do um, is to warm it and heat it up and then pr- once it starts to melt they p- squeeze it out and, and they filter it to get rid of all the bug parts and the twigs and things like that and they push it through a filter uh, could be a cloth you know could be a paper filter whatever they they're using um, and they push the um resin through that filter once it melts, um, and it essentially forms into little round droplets that they call button lac. So that is the the first refinement of the shellac, just to take the bug parts and the woody debris and things like that out of it. So melt it, filter it, and you've got button lac. From there, they process it even further um, by heating it again and pouring it into sheets. Once those, the that shellac, that button lac has been heated, poured into sheets and stretched and, and further clarified, those sheets of shellac are then broken up into flake shellac. And that's what we typically see. Um, that's what we usually buy is this flake, flake form of shellac. Um, that natural, the natural form of the flake shellac would be a garnet or an amber, depending on uh, how how much heat was applied, depending on um, how dark the resin was when when it was scraped off the trees, things like that. So you usually get a garnet or a dark amber shellac from that processing. You can also then bleach it, so they can they pull the color, essentially bleach the color out of the shellac to make it lighter. And this is where blonde and super blonde shellac come from is it's, it's further processed and further refined. And they try to lighten the color up um, and they bleach it to make blonde and super blonde shellac. So that essentially what we're getting is a refined bug excretion when, we, uh, when we're buying shellac flakes. Now, so you've got this this package of shellac flakes. And for the most part there there are two different types Um, you've got flakes that are regular waxed shellac so they have not had the wax removed and there are also de-waxed shellac flakes what's the difference well shellac has a natural wax in it and it's actually a fairly hard wax Um, and if you go to to don williams website again that's donsbarn.com he's got articles on shellac wax and um, and ha- he actually sells shellac wax, I believe. Um, and it, it, he discusses, you know, how hard of a wax and how useful the wax can actually be. Um, but so essentially you have waxed shellac and de-waxed shellac. Um, the only difference being that the dewaxed shellac has had, was been further processed to have the wax removed. Um, if you take the, uh, shellac and you dissolve it in alcohol, the wax layer will float to the top. Um, So then you can skim that off and remove all of that that wax. And once the alcohol evaporates, you're essentially left with shellac wax. The bottom layer is then de-waxed shellac. So again, you pour that out into a sheet, let the alcohol evaporate and you have de-waxed shellac flakes. Uh, that's really the only difference between the two. Dewaxed shellac tends to be what what I find anyway. So there's not a lot of, I don't have any science or research into this, but what I have observed visually, dewaxed shellac seems to be a bit clearer of a finish. Um, there's a little bit more clarity to it. Um, you know, think about you know in terms of super crystal clear glass and maybe like a frosted glass or something like that not maybe not that that severe but essentially that's kind of how my eye sees um, regular shellac that has not had the wax removed and and dewaxed shellac the dewaxed shellac tends to look a little bit clearer and brighter to to my eye my understanding is that dewaxed shellac also dries a little harder than shellac that still has the wax in it uh, i have not done any testing so i can't confirm or deny that um, again this is just what i have heard and read about the, uh, some of the differences between de-wax and wax shellac in use i really haven't found a whole lot of advantage or disadvantage one way or the other um, de shellac May be a little bit easier to rub out because of that brighter clarity and and um, and the fact that it, it supposedly dries a little bit harder. I haven't compared the process of rubbing out the shellac um, side by side with between dewaxed and waxed. So uh, again, I can't say with certainty, um, but both finishes dry fairly hard and both can be rubbed out to whatever sheen you desire. So I would not. Uh, let the process dissuade you one way or the other from buying one or the one or the other um the one thing that i have noticed is that de-waxed shellac flakes over time will tend to absorb some humidity and clump together um and they will get to a point where they can no longer be dissolved in alcohol like it'll, it'll just form this mass that won't dissolve um I haven't noticed that problem with wax with with uh, shellac flakes that still have wax in them, but those are getting harder and harder to find. Um, waxed shellac usually um, usually comes in premixed form. It's it's tough to find shellac flakes that are not de waxed anymore. So um, take that you know for for what it is, um, and and that's one of the things as well is that. It, when when it comes to shellac, um, it has a more or less infinite shelf life as long as it is in dried flake for, or dried form, stick lac form, lac, button lac, uh, flake form. Once you dissolve it in alcohol, it does have a shelf life um, where it just won't dry right if it stays in alcohol and solution for too long. Um, even once the alcohol evaporates, it gets kind of sticky, and and it doesn't fully dry if it, if the shellac is too old, but that really only happens if you have a mixture of it in alcohol, um, for too long. Um, if it dries, if the alcohol dries quickly, if you mix it up fresh, the alcohol dries quickly, um, you can then redissolve it in alcohol and it's fine, perfectly fine. So as long as it's in its dry form its shelf life is almost, um, indefinite. Keep it dry, keep it in a, in a cool, dark place, you know, the proverbial cool, dark place. Um, and I think you'll be just fine. Um, the pre-mixed stuff is okay. And we'll talk about, we'll talk about pound cut in a couple minutes when we talk about mixing our own. But there, as I mentioned, there are two ways you can buy it. You can buy it in, in dry form, which would be flake, button, um, you know, seed lac, stick lac, which aren't exactly that easy to get, but the flakes and the button lac you can you can get pretty easily. Which would be the dry unmixed form. You can also get it pre-mixed. The most popular brand would be Zinzer and you can find it in most home centers. They usually sell an amber and a blonde. Um, and they also sell a product called Seal Coat, which is essentially a super blonde, dewaxed shellac. Uh, there are two main differences between the premixed shellac and the seal coat. So, the amber and blonde premixed shellac that Zinser sells are waxed, first of all. They are not de waxed shellac. And you'll notice the difference as soon as you open the can because they have an opaque look to them. Uh, whereas something like the seal coat is very, very clear. Um, it's like you took, you know, yellow food dye and put it in water you can see through it it's just like yellow but transparent whereas the uh, wax with the shellac with the, the shellac with the wax and it is not transparent at all it's very opaque in the can so um, you'll notice that difference right away between the two the other difference between the amber and blonde shellac and the seal coat is the pound cut or the, the ratio of shellac to alcohol now, I've never confirmed this myself. Uh, I don't know how you how you would be able to without some type of chemical analysis, but um, what I've read and understood online is that the amber and blonde shellac, premixed shellac that Zinser sells is a three pound cut and the seal coat that Zinser sells is a two pound cut. I don't know how true that is because the the seal coat to me seems thinner than a two pound cut, but for what it is, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll accept it for now, but essentially just keep in mind that the, there's more shellac resin in the pre-mixed shellac than there is in the seal coat. The seal coat has a higher, um, ratio of alcohol to shellac than the pre-mixed shellac does. So the premixed shellac is going to be thicker um, because it has more resin in it than the seal coat. And, and that's not necessarily a good thing. You don't usually want to apply shellac too thick. You usually want to mix it pretty thin. So uh, when I use the premixed shellac, unless I'm just using it to, you know, seal up something inside a wall or whatever, cause it got stained or mildewed or stinks or whatever. Um, if I'm going to use it on, on woodworking stuff, then I'm usually going to thin it out. Um, but so keep that in mind that the pre-mixed shellac is usually about a three pound cut and the seal coat I'm told is about a two pound cut. Um, and that, those are the two differences. The amount of alcohol is higher in the seal coat, um, and the pre-mixed shellac is still has the wax in it. It is not de-waxed. The products work fine. Uh, I've used both of them. Um, They last for a while. You know, you can usually get away with a a can for a year or so, Um, but I would make sure that that can hasn't been sitting on the shelf for too long when you purchase it. Um, You want it to be as fresh as, as possible. My preference, however, is to mix up the shellac myself from flakes. Um, And there is a formula for doing that. And I mentioned it before, uh, and I refer to it as the pound cut. So the pound cut, essentially, it's it's a standard that was developed at some time, but we still refer to it today. Um, And it has to do with the ratio of shellac To alcohol alcohol being the um, the solvent that you use to dissolve the shellac flakes so a one pound cut is defined as one pound of shellac dissolved in one gallon of alcohol a two pound cut would be two pounds of shellac in a gallon of alcohol a three pound cut would be three pounds of shellac in a gallon of alcohol etc 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 the problem is most of us, you know, it's a fine measurement. It just gives you a ratio of, of weight of shellac flakes to um, volume of alcohol so that you can mix your, you know, you can create your mixes consistently. The problem is most of us don't use a gallon at a time. Um, I tend to not mix up more than about eight ounces to a pint at a time, um, depending on the size of the project that I'm going to use. So there's no reason for me to go and mix up an entire gallon of, of alcohol or of shellac. So instead, I, I would tend to try to break that ratio down. Now, Stephen in his book, Stephen Shepard in his book, book Shellac, Linseed Oil and Paint, Traditional 19th Century Woodwork Finishes, has a table that talks about how to make a, a one pound cut or two pound cut and a three pound cut in, in one pint of alcohol. Essentially, it would be two ounces, four ounces, or six ounces of shellac into one pint of alcohol, respectively. But even so, I don't even really use a one pound cut of shellac most of the time when I am using shellac. The mix that I use is probably closer to about a half a pound cut um, because I find that shellac goes on much better when it's applied thin, very thin. Um, So I don't really use the conversion tables all that much, but I would say an ounce of shellac, if you want to, you know, measure um, for the the first few times that you use shellac, measure out about an ounce. If you've got a kitchen scale, measure out about an ounce of shellac and dissolve that in a pint of alcohol. And that's going to give you a half pound cut Um, And you should be in good shape using that mixture. The other thing you can do is to make a stock. Some people will make a stock of, say, a a two-pound cut or a three-pound cut, dissolving more shellac in alcohol, and then diluting that for use. So they keep a stock and then they'll dilute it. I've never really found um, that to be very useful because then you're left with this stock of shellac that is aging so for me i'd rather just mix it up as i need it um you know and so i'll mix up a pint at a time about a about an ounce of shellac flakes to about a pound a pint of alcohol and that's a pretty good mix Um, and that will give you a half pound cut and that is a a pretty good um, a pretty good cut for putting on furniture it allows it to go on thin it dries very quickly so you can get multiple coats in a day I've I've already um, I've had situations where I've done six eight ten coats of shellac in a day uh, because I mix it thin I apply it thin and the alcohol dissolves so uh, evaporates so fast um, that it dries and you can apply another coat relatively quickly and because It's re-soluble in alcohol. Each time you apply a new coat of alcohol, the new coat essentially dissolves or burns into the existing coats that are already on the surface. So you don't have to sand between coats. Um, There's no adhesion issues with multiple coats like you might have with polyurethane or something like that because the, the new alcohol partially redissolves the old finish underneath and everything just kind of melts together. So it's it's really nice in that way. So I might put on six, eight, 10 coats, depending on the purpose of the piece or, or what um, you know how many I think it might need or what sheen I'm looking to develop. Um, once I have the coats put on and, and I'll do that, you can do it by brushing. If I'm putting... Um, If I want to put a lot of coats on, sometimes I'll do the early coats by brushing because uh, once again, I I put it on so thin with such a thin mixture that it can take a few coats to fill the grain. Um, So if if I'm looking to rub out a finish to get it a really nice and flat and high gloss, you kind of have to fill that grain first. So in those cases, I'll usually brush on a few coats um, to get it on quick and get it on i don't want to say thick because it's still a pretty thin mix but get it on quickly so that i can build a few coats quickly um, and try to get those those pores sealed and then i might cut it back with some 400 grit sandpaper to start to level the finish and then brush on a few more coats um, and then cut it back with 400 grit sandpaper again after it dries Um, again so i'm starting to starting to level the finish Uh, And get everything nice and smooth because if you're going to go for a very high gloss that finished surface needs to be very flat the other way to apply shellac um, is With a pad or rubber uh, Which is essentially nothing more than a rolled up t-shirt you could put um, cotton um, stuffing or batting or uh, you know um, Some people put cheesecloth in the middle or uh, polyester batting or whatever. Um, and you make this little round ball uh, that you you can then soak in shellac and you can rub it onto the surface. Um, that tends to put the shellac on thinner, but it also helps to control drips and, and sags and runs a little bit more. Um, because shellac does have a tendency to build at edges. So if you have a corner, If you're doing a tabletop, for example, and where the the top and the edge of the table meet, you've got this corner. And oftentimes you'll get a little buildup right at that corner. Um, Padding helps to minimize that. You're still gonna get it a little bit, but by padding on the shellac, it helps to minimize that buildup at the corners a little bit. Um, But if you're trying to build coats fast, brushing is the way to go. You can also spray shellac. Um, I don't own spray equipment. Um, So it's not something that I do, um, and I find it really doesn't have a whole lot of advantage over brushing and padding because uh, it's such a fast finish and easy finish to apply that brushing and padding works just fine. Um, But again, watch your corners and uh, brush on the first few coats, cut it back with 400, brush on a few more coats, cut it back with 400 again. what you'll see as you start to sand it back and level the finish is that you'll get dull spots and shiny spots the shiny spots are the low spots where the finish is still building the dull spots as you're sanding are the spots where uh, the finish is higher so essentially you want to brush and cut it back Uh, and and again this is if you're just going for a a flat high gloss finish you essentially want to brush it and cut it back until when you cut it back with that 400 grit you don't get any more shiny spots because those shiny spots again are low spots once you get a uniform dull surface then you know that your finish is even and it's all cut back nice and flat from there you can start the process of building that sheen back up so usually once i have a surface like that that's perfectly flat the first thing i'll do is to um, pad on a few more coats of shellac just to rebuild what I sanded away and you're, you're going to get a high gloss there and then I'll cut that gloss back with maybe 600 grit sandpaper um, because I've already got it pretty flat so I don't really want to cut it back too much but I want to get the roughness off the surface and get everything smooth again so sand it down with 600 and then you can start to bring that surface up you can rub it with um with up to about four oz steel wool with wax and that'll give you a nice satin kind of sheen. And you can stop there. Um, or if you wanna bring it up, let it let it go. After those last few coats have been padded on, let it sit for a few days and get, you know, make sure all that solvent has really evaporated off and that the uh, shellac has gotten really hard again. And you can start to then polish it. So you cut it back with your 600 and it's gonna get dull and then maybe switch to uh, 800 or 1,000 grit sandpaper, uh, and then maybe move up to 1,500, up to 2,000. Um, and I can I, I can get up to 2,000 grit in my local home center, uh, but you may need to go to an auto parts store to get sandpaper grits that are that high. While you're at the auto parts store, also pick up some automotive uh, rubbing compound and polishing compound, because after you go to 2,000 grit, you can apply rubbing compound just like you would a, a, on a car and if you want that mirror shine you can go up to polishing compound um, traditionally you would use um, things like um, pumice and rotten stone and you would put those on maybe put a add a little bit of mineral oil or linseed oil to that pumice and rotten stone to create a slurry and you would use a, a cork or a, or a felt block to rub out your surface um, with modern technology, you know, with high grit sandpapers and uh, automotive polishing compounds, the pumice and the rotten stone are, are a little less needed uh, these days, and not too many people seem to be using them because the, um, the high grit sandpapers and the automotive polishing compounds are a little bit easier to come by these days. Uh, you know, if you want to go the traditional route with the pumice and rotten stone, you're probably going to have to order that. Um, but if you want to go the more uh, contemporary route with the high-grit high, uh, high grit sandpaper and polishing compounds, automotive polishing compounds, you can get those at pretty much any automotive store. Uh, AutoZone, you know, Advanced Auto, any, any local auto parts store will have polishing compounds and high-grit sandpapers. So pretty much anybody can get them anywhere you live. Uh, at least if you' you're in the, the US or Canada or, or most likely Europe as well. Um, so it might be a little easier to to seek those products out. Otherwise if you want to go the traditional route, uh, order yourself some pumice and rotten stone um, and then you'll have to um, you'll have to mix that up probably with some mineral oil or some linseed oil and use that as a slurry to polish the surface. Of course that all sounds very complicated. Um, and there's really ne- no need to go to that level and most of the time I don't. So when I use shellac in more realistic situations where, you know, I don't want that super high gloss, what I'm usually doing is brushing on three or four coats to get that initial build, rubbing it back with 400 grit paper, padding on another two or three coats letting that dry and then I rub it out with steel wool and paste wax so after after those padded on coats I may wait a couple of days let the shellac really dry well let all the excess solvent flash off and evaporate and let the shellac get real hard again once that surface is real hard I break out the 4 steel wool uh, liberon Steel wool is my preference. I think it's finer than most other 4 steel wool. Um, it doesn't have the oil in it that you get with most uh, hardware store brands of steel wool. And it just feels nicer in use. Uh, I will use that and I will use paste wax. Uh, in terms of a paste wax, whatever I have on hand is typically what I'll use. It could be Briwax, wax, it could be or Brywax. wax. I'm not sure how they pronounce it could be liberon wax could be min wax finishing wax or uh, butchers johnson or butchers paste wax whatever paste wax i have on hand i will use that to lubricate the steel wool and just rub everything down till i get a nice even uh, nice even cut across the entire surface and then with a, a fine fine cotton cloth usually old t-shirt old white t-shirts or something like that Uh, buff up that surface and you get a really really nice kind of low gloss satiny sheen it's it's just a really nice surface Uh, it doesn't feel plasticky to the touch like a polyurethane surface might Um, it's it's A very tactile surface it gives you a really nice feel it gives you a really nice shine Um, very easy to apply very quick to apply Um, and it's just it happens to be one of my favorite finishes so Um, so don't be afraid of shellac it's very forgiving Uh, the mix doesn't really matter you know I mentioned a half pound cut earlier Uh, if you go a little bit heavier than a half pound cut or a little bit lighter than a half pound cut again really doesn't matter um it's it's a very forgiving finish it sands easily um it it levels easily it applies easily it cleans up easily most of the time i don't even clean my shellac brushes i just let them harden and then when i want to use the shellac again i just let the brush sit in alcohol for 10 or 15 minutes and it softens that brush up good as new um so you don't have to worry about cleaning brushes you don't have to worry about um toxicity in the finish because shellac is for the most part uh, completely non-toxic the alcohol is for the most part non-toxic the denatured alcohol does have a slightly toxic denaturing agent in it um, so that you can't drink it but you can go to the liquor store and buy uh, everclear the the 95 190 proof everclear Um, at least you can in in many states in the united states And use that to mix up your shellac, and then you don't have to worry about the denaturing agent that makes denatured alcohol poisonous. Um, And you've got a completely non toxic finish that you can put on, uh, you know, food contact surfaces, you can put it on furniture, you can put it on baby toys, you can put it on just about everything. And again, it's quick to apply, it's quick drying, uh, it's Easy to work with. It just happens to be one of my favorite finishes of all time. So don't be afraid of shellac. Uh, Get yourself some flakes. Get yourself some alcohol, and uh, and experiment. Try it out. Mix some up. Give it a try. I think you will be. uh, I think you'll like it just as much as I do. So that's going to do it for this week's show. As always, I want to thank you all for joining me and allowing me to do this. I'm extremely grateful for all the support you've all provided. As a reminder, please send in your feedback, questions, and topic suggestions because this show depends upon your input and participation for its content. Just record a voice memo on your phone and email it to bob at brfinewoodworking.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 276-601-3123 or use the contact form on the website at brfinewoodworking.com contact. If you're looking for the show notes for today's episode, You'll find them on my website at brfinewoodworking.com slash htt049. In the show notes, you'll find any links that I referred to in today's show, and you can also find links to follow me on all my social media accounts, which these days is, for the most part, just Instagram. Finally, if you'd like to support the show, you can become a supporter on Patreon and get your questions answered in the monthly Q&A video, or you can make a one-time donation through PayPal and you'll find links to do so in the show notes and at brfinewoodworking.com slash support. So thank you again for listening, and until next time, stay sharp everybody.